Luke chapter 22, we'll begin reading in verse 39. We'll simply do 39 through 46. It is the same text we used last Sunday, but we're taking uh, a different perspective on it. Last Sunday, we looked at the events in this, contrasting Christ with his disciples. This week, we're going to be looking at some theology here that is of very great importance to us. Luke chapter 22. Follow along with me as I read. I'll read out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as was his custom, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. This morning we have before us perhaps one of the most powerful texts uh, or events in Christ's life that um, give us a real richness in understanding some important biblical concepts that are very far-reaching. Uh, it's not going to be possible for me this morning to really to engage some of those extents to which we could uh, speak and discuss and probably need to be, quite frankly. Um, but we will certainly take the time to look at the prayer, Christ's prayer in the garden, um, not from a side of um, trying to feel his agony. We're not really looking at that today. We are acknowledging it, of course. Um, we are seeking to look at the truth behind that agony. What it reveals about the nature of our Lord and Savior, the nature of our triune God, and what it means to us as a people who call themselves Christians. We looked last week at really the contrast between the success, really, in terms of ministry of Christ, fulfilling the will of God, and to the failure of the disciples in being able to guard themselves from temptation. And that success and failure really boiled down to a commitment to prayer, to understanding its value and its importance. And so we want to begin this morning by recognizing what Christ recognized in the necessity of prayer in strengthening, developing, and relying on our relationship with our Father. Let's go to Him now. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. And again, we come to Your Word uh, recognizing our limitations. Recognizing that we do not have really the capacity to fully grasp its truth. And yet it is truth intended for us. 
to lay hold of, to meditate upon, and to apply to our lives. This contradiction to us is made much simpler. As we consider that you recognized our weakness as well and have granted us your Holy Spirit. And we pray that he might have liberty to work and move in our midst this morning. And this one speaking that my guard this time from error, from opinion, thoughts of men. In each one of us listening, we might be attentive not only to the words spoken, but our hearts might be attentive to the impact they need to have on our lives. That we might certainly be discerning, but that we might not let that claim of discernment give us reason to disobey. So we pray for a genuine tenderness to your truth today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. We come to a prayer. Luke gives us a little bit of information that the others do not. Um, It is significant, I think, for us to recognize the place that this passage has uh, in its impact on the gospel writers. Uh, They place it. Very clearly, they take some time to describe it um, as a key element of this uh, night of the beginning, really, of the, of the end for Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, we find that it is going to be the predecessor to the arrest, the betrayal, the trial. It's going to be happening all night. He is confronting uh, a uh, things that we really don't understand. We really just don't. Uh, Because we came into this world already with a broken relationship with God, we consider that normal. And therefore, it is very difficult for us to really comprehend and grasp what it means to have a perfect, complete, full, and fully equal relationship with God the Father, and then to have that horribly broken and have never have experienced that in our past. We cannot really connect to that. For we consider that our current relationship with God is something substantive and we might rejoice in it. Uh, we might struggle a little bit of, of if it's growing or if it's where it should be, but we recognize that we really don't know what it's like to have what Christ had. We look forward to having it in the future, but we really cannot associate ourselves with the intimacy that He had with the Father. Although He has now granted it to us um, in this state of being in our flesh, we really uh, have not laid hold of it fully. I don't believe as, as, certainly not as Christ has experienced it. And so Christ is contemplating what's coming And this is a very important passage um, to give us a a wonderful fullness in one particular area of doctrine, but it really uh, reaches out. You just can't handle 
one piece of doctrine. Because every piece of doctrine has its tentacles, if you will, just penetrating all the others. And it's foolhardy, really, for us often to go into and systematize theology. Um, we do so, and we do so for our benefit. Um, but in doing it, we usually recognize that we are doing damage, um, compartmentalizing theology that way. We are doing some damage to it because we aren't recognizing often the far-reaching effects of, of it. We become myopic of just seeing what's right in front of us and not how it penetrates many other aspects, not only of doctrine, but of practice, of what we do and how we do it. And uh, that kind of compartmentalization is very dangerous. It has led many people into error, in my opinion, and into the opinion of God's Word, uh, more importantly. Uh, It has further led people into poor practice. By compartmentalizing truth, we are able to disassociate this truth from this practice. And therefore, we can excuse this because we never connected it to the theology. So today, while we're going to be talking a lot of theology and we're going to be trying to address some issues that are out there and are very important, um, I don't want to just have you in a disconnect mode where you're thinking, what does this really have to do with my life? It, It has much to do with it. I hope to take you to some other passages of Scripture to really bring that out. What is it that we want to discuss? Uh, We want to talk about defining Jesus a little bit. Um, We have a presentation here uh, in the Garden Prayer of of Christ's humanity on a scale that that perhaps we have missed. We often think of, well, the real presentation of Christ's humanity was when he was that little baby in a manger and so helpless and, and... and he was just uh, uh, like every other child and couldn't communicate and, and was totally dependent upon parents and others. Um, and we think, well, that's really, that's where we see Christ's humanity, uh, where he really became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, we might see it um, perhaps in his, uh, the temptation narrative uh, and uh, see some of it that that. How much has he taken on flesh there? We're going to reference that a couple of times. We may see it here and there. But I think if there's any place, and we might see it at the cross, or we see the agony and the, and the misery that he suffered there and say, oh, there he really uh, felt humanity, really sensed humanity, really understood humanity there because he participated in, in this violent death. Um, but the fact is, is that not all of us are going to experience a violent death. In fact, the odds are that most of you won't. I would contend that if there is any place that is really a place where we can put our finger and say, right there, I know. Christ felt all of what it meant to be fully human. Now, we are not talking about that somehow he never felt it before. Don't get that impression anywhere. I'm not saying that it was not known by Christ, understood by Christ, and sensed by Christ prior nor that it happened that it didn't happen on the cross. Rather, that this is a time for us to really study it, and we have much revealed in a very few words. Christ makes some statements here that cannot be lost on us. We're also going to take us from Genesis and really into Revelation to really study this fully. We're going to find out that, first of all, Jesus 
is a personal being and has a relationship with another personal being called Father. You might refer to him as God. And this relationship was both public and private. It was of the utmost intimacy. He recognized a subordinate role in that relationship uh, that he had. Um, And he came to his father in that capacity. And we find that that, uh, this personal being relating to another personal being uh, is going to reveal something about both of those beings that we call God. I'm going to have a hard time this morning because I'm going to be going from singular to plural very freely. It's going to frustrate you to no end. It's going to be grammatically incorrect, but it's going to be theologically right. But we're going to be talking about them do this. And I say, that doesn't sound so good. That sounds like you coming out of the deep south or something. you got to learn some better English. Um, no, that is theologically correct. Them do do. They do this. Singular verb. Or does. Them does. Sorry. Them do is correct. Them. They do. Sorry. Got my grammar all wrong. They does. There we go. That's what I wanted to say. That's what wanted to come out of my mouth. They does. And he do. So we're going to talk about this relationship. And that's going to take us to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis. This interrelationship between two personal beings, and of course we are triunists, which means we believe that there are three that are one, and I'm not neglecting the Holy Spirit. It's just not our focus this morning. We're focusing on Christ's relationship with the Father. Um, We could talk about Christ's relationship with the Spirit in some other passages, particularly in John, um, in, in reference to this. So we want to look at Christ's relationship with the Father. And uh, we come to Genesis chapter 1, and we find that the presentation of God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, um, Elohim, this one, this plural one. Um, we find that they have conversation even back then. And I don't want this to be lost on us at all, that somehow that the incarnation created another person. For that is falsehood. That is error. That is heresy. For it makes Christ less than God because He is not eternal. And so we have here three persons conversing with one another as personal beings relating to with one another and coordinating themselves to one another. How does this come out? In a very simple phrase. In verse 26, God said something strange. He said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps upon the creeps on the earth. This is God talking to, guess who? Think about who there is to talk to right now. Him. 
There's only one personal being at this point that we have been introduced to, and that personal being is having a conversation. He's not talking to himself like you and I might say, oh, Kirk, you big dummy, what are you doing um, when I do something wrong or something happens? Um, he's talking to himself. No, I'll take that back. He's talking to himself. And this is not some fractured uh, multi-personality. These are three independent, three wills, if you will, that are coming to an agreement on something. Let us do something. Now, we haven't really seen this kind of conversation in the prior creative acts, but we come to this, his highest created act of creating man, and we find him engaging in this conversation that let's do something spectacular here now. And you could almost hear the other say, yeah, let's do that. Well, what's it going to be like? Well, let's make him like us. And the other responding saying, that's a great idea. Now, I know that sounds a little heretical, just that concept, but that somehow one had an idea, the other didn't have one had knowledge. But this is what it meant to have this conversation. There were wills involved here. They were already personal beings that were engaging in this kind of, of relationship, of responsiveness, one to the other. And we might look at that and say, oh, this hurts my brain, and you, it should. <laughs> it is that far above us. And yet it is described for us here. And so God declares this, and we find this happening again and again, even throughout the Old Testament. We think, oh, this started here um, at uh, Christ's baptism, where you have the voice and you have the, the Spirit and you have the Son, that that's where it all really, that, that was where we really start to picture it. But we find it going way back in the Old Testament, where here's the Father describing His Son and describing what he's going to be there for and what he's going to do and how he's going to subordinate himself to the Father's will. And we find that finally, uh, not fully acted out, it's going to be acted out in the next 24 hours for Christ, but it's going to be fully played for us in the prayer of the garden. Here is our Lord, the one who has already demonstrated his power over demons, power over illness, power over the wind and the waves, power over the temple, really, in, in, in fact, um, his power over death itself. He's already demonstrated that as power of truth. Um, we find that fullness of deity there. Uh, we, of course, have it connected very clearly to the Holy Spirit uh, in prior texts. But he comes to the Father. This is the holder of all this power. Comes to the Father. With a lot on him. With his agony. With his turmoil. With his... Thoughts. And 
his affections. And he lays them out. And if there is any place we can associate or know that Christ associates with us, it is here. One of the very first things that we discover in our text here is that there is already a beginning to the dis- to a great distinction between the Father and the Son that is going to culminate in the death, uh, a separation. There's already a pulling apart. There's already, uh, I'm going to use a word that we think of as final, but it's really not. There's already division. In the indivisible one, there is a kind of division already starting. And Christ comes, and he, and it's not that this this distinction wasn't always there. And I tried to point it out that I believe that there were distinct wills, for there are distinct people, uh, personal beings, not people, um, people refers to humans, but, but entities, personal entities who are engaging in a relationship. Uh, they did not need mankind because they are lonely. There's some teaching out there to that respect. Uh, God was complete in himself. We find now that there is maybe for the first time we've ever really seen a little, a lot, there's some division. There is one of the strongest distinctions that really have been made in Scripture between the Father and the Son. When Christ comes to us and says, if there's any way, I would love to avoid this. What's coming? For the Son to come to the Father and say, here's what I want. I have this and I know what you want and right now I'm asking you, is there any other way? Incredible. consider the idea of it. And as much as we might look at Christ screaming on the cross, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and we, we think about that and that's just, it's not possible. But it happened. Praise God. The agony has already begun in our Savior because there's already the rending between them in, in, the, in the unanimity of their wills. The Son, genuinely, I have to believe because the Bible says it, has wanted something different than what He recognizes to be the will of His Father. And I would contend with you that this agony was not just about what's to come, but what is already happening that night. The one who thousands of years earlier with perfect 
unanimity said, let us do this. Is coming to the Father saying, do we have to do this? I have to tell you, if there is anything that points to just how human Christ is, it is this statement. For you see, it is not that Christ did not have a will before He became human, but now it is that capacity of that will in this flesh to recognize that this isn't pleasant. This is not something that I look forward to. It is not that he is denying the necessity of it. He is not. He is not denying that um, the theology behind it. He is expressing boldly, forthrightly, to his most intimate confidant, his genuine feelings and desire with regard to what is about to transpire and what is already beginning to transpire. We begin in the understanding of the incarnation and really the doctrine of Christ, of Jesus uh, precedes the incarnation by some degrees. But uh, we often start thinking, I'm going to start studying about Jesus by turning to the Gospels, and that's really not the best place to start, but it's back farther because he is pre-incarnate Christ pre-incarnate God. But we often associate this here um, because He is our mediator. He is the one who is associated with something different about Christ than the Father. There's something different about Christ than the Spirit. And that difference is that He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we often want to look there and be... and, and, and Focus there, and we need to. It's important. It's vital. Um, it's not the beginning point, but it is a very strategic and high point in our study. And what do we find in God's Word? Philippians chapter 2 talks about Him emptying Himself. Um, and we're going to be reading that here shortly. But it's that whole idea that something different that had not been experienced by God prior, that changes the second person of the Godhood in, in, in some very fundamental ways. And the beginning exercises of that is being seen here, of coming to the Father and recognizing, I understand the truth, I understand the purposes, I know why I was sent here, I know the hour is here, I really know in my head that it is unavoidable. And yet, Lord, I want so much to avoid it. To avoid the unavoidable. And so I come to you and ask you, is there any other way? And then the next statement we find here, so we find that this emptied one, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, we find this one who has taken on this humanity um, setting aside so much of his deity and he comes to the Father and he recognizes a necessity of subordination. Not my will, but yours be done. Perhaps one of the most potent statements of Christ in declaring who he is and how much like us he had become yet without sin. 
You see, when Christ declares His desire, His will, He is not fighting the Father. There's a big distinction between that. It is not my will against yours, but rather my will declared that it will now come in surrender to yours. I'll conform it. I think all parents here understand the value of your children having their own wills. We try to shape them, mold them, to influence them, but we recognize that they are their own person. And we know the difference between rebellion and a presentation of this is what I'd really like I know what you want. Here's what I want. And we recognize when that is presented in a subordinating, uh, honoring fashion. In contrast to a rebellious statement, say, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what you want. We recognize the difference between that. And so do not throw me over here in saying that Jesus Christ was fighting the Father that night. That is not what He was sweating over. He was sweating over the discord that was in Him with what He knew and what He felt. With what was determined. With what he had desire for. Now we are told that he looked beyond the cross, and because of that, he offered himself. He saw joy on the other side of his death, of his anguish, of the separation. He saw the joy on the other side of it. John really brings that out a little bit more. Um, but here Luke is really focused in on, on this the agonizing that is going on at this time. And we cannot divorce it from what Christ was actually praying. We want to fill him with all these ideas. We don't have any notion of the ideas of what Christ was thinking during this time other than the very words that he said. And those words were focused on, I know your will, God. I know my will. And right now, for this moment... They are in discord. And I don't know of anything more unsettling to our Lord that He had ever experienced to that point than that. That I have a will and you have a will and they're not uniform. And I surrender my will to yours. Let your will be done. Because I understand that we made this plan in eternity past. That at the creation and at that sin, we determined that there would be a solution for that sin and that I would be that solution. I recognize all that was there and now I am in this moment and here is my flesh and my flesh says, I don't want it. My flesh is not all of me. 
It is a part of your will is your flesh. Any man that wants to think that somehow that your flesh isn't uh, a significant part of your decision-making process is a fool. The Bible calls us over and over and over again to deny our flesh, to deny our flesh, to deny our flesh. Why? Because its influence will always put us in opposition to the will of God. And so we deny it. The flesh says sleep. God said pray. (laughs) It was going on that very night. And Christ is here, and it's not a loss for us to see the reference to the physicality of Christ praying. Only Luke brings it out, the great physician. There's no evidence that he prayed different praying the second and third times he goes back. Only that its earnestness increased. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Let me just reference this for you. He was not sweating blood. Please learn your language. This is a use of simile, a metaphor. The word like tells us that it was sweat, but it had properties comparable to blood dripping. It was that flowing from him. So he wasn't sweating blood. He was sweating with great volumes that had dripped like blood, which is, has a greater viscosity and it pools a little more before it drops. So there was a physicality to what he was enduring. There was this adamant desire of, uh, within his flesh and he recognized it. And I've got to share with you that, yes, Christ is without sin here. Um, this is the agony that Adam and Eve should have endured at the cross if they had come out properly. This, this recognition that just because my eyes desire it, just because my fleshly appetites are, are intrigued by it, doesn't mean I must succumb to it. When did Adam and Eve actually sin? The Bible references it when they took and ate. Not when they wanted it. Please recognize the difference. It is vital to your Christian life. When have you sinned? When you have failed to subjugate your wanter to God's will. God recognizes our flesh. He recognizes our weakness and says that out of that He gives us the tools necessary to avoid temptation, to have victory in and through it, to, through the trials of life. Um, he understands the power of it. Why does He understand the power of it? Because He was in the garden. He understands the power of our flesh and He was fighting it in the garden, subordinating His will to the Father's will. Was that will sinful at that time because it was different than the Father's? No. 
No. It is part of what it means to be in the image of God. Is that you have the capacity to choose. And that necessitates that will to desire and to then look at those desires and then choose one. The fact is, all of us are filled with desires. And every temptation that's going to confront you is going to rise up and you're going to be confronted with multiple desires that are in you. I desire this, but I also desire this, but I also desire this, but I also desire this. Now comes my will. And I'm going to pick on something that every one of you, especially the ladies, but most of us guys these days, have that we talk about, where's your willpower? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Okay, so I've been working hard. So I, I have a desire. My desire is to be about 20 pounds lighter than I am. And then my daughter makes herself a root beer float. I have not desired less the first desire. I want, I still do. I still want to weigh 20 pounds less than I do now. And so because of that, I do other things that I don't desire to do really too much. Um, you know, physical exercise and different diet and things like that. But then I'm confronted with this and I'm looking at this. Oh man, now I want two things and they're opposite. The one will injure the other. So we start, our mind starts going, how can I, I'll I'll use diet root beer. (laughs) Because ice cream has no calories. I just made that up, but it works for me. You see, Christ's desire does not equal acting on that desire. You're wondering whether I had a root beer float last night or not, aren't you? Yeah, I succumbed. <laughs> oh, the flesh is so weak. No, my will is weak in comforting my flesh. Christ's success here was he didn't surrender to his flesh. He didn't surrender to, it's not that he had an old nature, but just the human, the, the the bodily existence that we have that was exactly what was confronting Eve in the garden was, well, it looks good and and I hear some good things about it. Yeah, I like my time with God. Let there be no doubt that that was a pleasurable experience for them to walk with the Lord in the cool of the garden every evening. She was confronted with a choice between two desires. I desire this, and yet I desire this. Oh, now I have to decide. And that's a will. Having those two desires in and of themselves did not was not the sin. It was when she chose the wrong one to act upon. And our Lord here did not choose to subordinate to His flesh. 
to bring it under submission. And Paul describes this in his war on sin in his own life as beating his body into subjection. I know that all Baptists thinks that buffet means buffet, but it means to beat on, not to feed on. Okay? I buffet my body, old King James. I beat it. I, I, I bring it into, into surrender to me, wanting to surrender my will to the Father's will. And that is what Christ is doing. He is not unfamiliar with what you go through day after day after day after day of saying, I want this, I want this, I want this, and I want this. Ah! There's three things that don't go along with one. I have to choose today. I want to sleep in more. Oh boy, there it is. But I want to get closer to God. I know I need to spend time prayer and in God's Word. And I really, really want to make sure I get to work on time. And I want, and I want, and I want. Christ wanted to avoid what was coming. But He did not respond to that that was in Him that was so much, in fact, perfectly like us. Yeah, without sin. What does this mean? James tells us that Christ was, I'm sorry, was, no, I'm not, I'm in the wrong place. Sorry. Uh, Scripture tells us that Christ was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Where's that at? I just lost the track of my mind. Hebrews, thank you. James tells us that pattern of sin, of where, that where is sin conceived in this process, and wherever that is, Christ didn't cross that line of when, of sin, but it's certain that there is this conflict that rises up within us between these wills. And because Christ experienced that conflict, and the conflict itself is called temptation, the conflict itself is that trial. It is not sin for that conflict to occur. Eve did not sin because she was confronted with two different desires. The conflict that, that Satan brought out and, 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 and magnified that was in their flesh and it was latently already there because they were in the human flesh and and um, but Satan brought this out, this conflict, and, and the conflict was very real in Eve, and she chose wrong. Christ here is confronted with that same conflict of desires that are opposed to one another, but ultimately he recognized that this was in opposition to the will of God, and therefore. It was not to be chosen. And brethren, that is temptation. Period. And his statement is of wondrous power. That he did this not just once and settled it as if he went through some rote thing to show us that he could do it, but that this was something that was going on inside of him 
for an extended period of time. He kept revisiting it and revisiting it, revisiting it with the Father. Don't tell me that this is unlike what you and I experience in any way. Or Hebrews is meaningless. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How far down was Christ willing to go? All the way to experience death itself. The separation between him and the Father. The separation between his immaterial and his material part and all the agony and physical pain that was involved in that. He was willing to experience it. But once you notice there's this statement there of his make, made himself of no reputation and uh, perhaps in your margins or somewhere in your uh, past of Scripture, you have uh, an alternate translation called emptied himself, which is often a preferred use of that, uh, literally to the Greek, is emptied himself. That when he took on this full humanity, and we must recognize full humanity. He was the second Adam. He had within his being all that Adam was before sin. He was tempted as Adam was. This necessitated something. The Bible says that he had to put some things aside. He had to empty some things uh, out of his reach, if you will. And we have some theologians out there fighting over what did he empty himself of? Um, Did he empty himself of his deity? No. He did not cease to be God for 30-some years. So what did he empty himself of? It certainly says that he emptied himself and the implication is it has something to do with his deity because it certainly wasn't anything of his humanity. He didn't empty himself of that. And so it has to be connected to verse 6. It says he was in the form of God and equal with God. He surrendered something. And empty is empty, people. Okay? I meant to bring a cup here. I usually do. And if I pour out a little bit of it and it's still half full, is it empty? Would you say that's an empty cup? No. That's partial. That's an emptying a little bit. But it says he emptied himself. He gave it up entirely. There's some capacity of his um, relationship with deity that he gave up entirely. I will contend that at the garden we find out exactly what it is. We've seen glimpses of it earlier when he makes statements saying, I don't know, the Father knows. When he says, I have to do what my Father says. He surrendered himself 
I want you to understand this. Because he loved you, he did this. He subordinated himself that he hadn't had really in all eternity for you. He emptied himself. And many people will say, well, of the use of his deity. <clears throat> he surrendered himself. He emptied himself of the, of the independent use of deity. The garden was not, there was no deity going on there in, in what was going on in Christ that he could get victory and you couldn't. The implications there was very clearly that he intended the disciples to be just as successful as he was that night. And there was great success there that night by our Savior. Nothing Satan could tempt him with was comparable, I don't think, to what was about to happen within the next 24 hours. We look at the temptation of Christ and it's a very important passage and it's the beginning. It's the initiation, if you will, of it. Um, but here is the culmination. I mean, this is the, the, the high point, if you will, of God the Son saying to God the Father, I've surrendered already. I really have. I'm emptied of my claim to that equal role with you. And I am fully surrendered to your will and not mine. Let me share with you, as personal beings who also have the capacity of independently engaging in relationships, you have your own will. But if you are here and you are claiming the name of Christ, you have essentially prayed Christ's prayer. Not my will, but thine be done. The problem is, is that when we're leading people to Christ, we're not explaining that to them very well. And so most of us aren't living it. We aren't picking up the cross the next day and dying for Jesus. Because all we can think about is what we've gained and not what we've given up. We've supposedly surrendered our will to God. We call Him Master. We call Him Lord. And yet God says, I'm going to wait for you to do it day by day. You see, if Christ had prayed this prayer and then jumped off the cross and run off, wouldn't have meant much, would it? But for the Christian, we have a will. And we have chosen, like Christ, to say, I can follow my sin's affections, my fleshly affections, which will lead me to sin. I can follow them in antithesis to you, in antagonism to you, I can just kind of tool along in my sin and ignore you, or I can come to you and submit to you and say, not my will, but yours. You have the right to surrender your will to others. People do it frequently. 
That's what happens in a mob. People surrender their will to others. It's going to happen the next day in Jerusalem. A mob that wanted Christ to be their Messiah, wanted Jesus to be their Messiah, and now they want him dead. Why? They surrendered their will to others. Part of your image-bearingness of the Father of God is that you have an independent personal will. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You can do what Christ did and said, not my will, but yours be done. And brethren, this is a prayer that needs to be made not just once to cover the rest of your life, but every day, hour by hour. I'm not sure we do very well without praying it every five minutes. Having an attitude saying, I want to do what God wants. I want to do what God wants. I want to do what God wants. I've already made that declaration. I want to do what God wants. When doing this baptism class, we've been communicating that this picture, I am dead to myself and alive to God. It's a statement, not my will, but yours be done. The agony here was that Christ was struggling with what that would require of Him. Not days from now, not weeks from now, but moments from His Amen. Here come my betrayer. Here come my enemy. Here come. Do you trust God enough to pray the prayer, not my will, but thine be done? Um, recognize that Christ's agony, and there is agony in it. There is, this is a war. There is a fight that is had. There is sweat to be put out there. Um, to win this thing requires your attention, requires energy and effort on your part. Um, it, 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 it's going to make demands of you. To live this kind of a life. Not my will, but yours be done. And you're going to be sweating with all these desires and say, oh man, I want this, I want that, I want... But I know that's not what God wants. And I pray this prayer. Sometimes with great sweat. With great agony. Not my will, but yours. I'll deny myself. I'll take up my cross. And I will follow you. The Lord did it. It is That's how human He was. He experienced it just as you. But He didn't sin. And He calls us, you want victory over temptation? Pray. And He even told us what to pray. Not my will. I have my will, Lord. I know what my desires are. But I want what your desires are. Your purpose is fulfilled in me. Not my will. Yours be done in me.